0: Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle, and AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler Bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from around the world together to share stories and make connections. It doesn't matter if you're a novice or expert. It doesn't matter if you like wrenching, riding, or collecting better. If you've ever smiled while riding a bicycle and you would throw your leg over any bike you got a chance to ride, then you're in the right place. Have you ever talked to somebody who was in the Guinness Book of World Records? I have! And I got to talk to him about what do you do after you cycle around the entire world. I also got a chance to talk to a not-so-secret society of three-speed enthusiasts and the artist who started the club. We go down to Georgia for an ABC quick check, and Liz reads the fourth installment of Billy's Bicycle Triumph, a story about bicycles and this kid named Billy from 1919 that was almost lost to time. All that and a little more. There are an incredible amount of bicycle podcasts out there and I truly sincerely am grateful that you've come along with me for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. So a lot of people have read the books about people who cycled around the world, especially back in the day. But I just got a chance to talk to somebody who actually cycled around the entire world. Yeah, the Earth. The whole Earth cycled around the Earth. Obviously not over the water, but you you know what I'm saying. It's still a big deal. Not only that, they went in the hard direction. The direction where you get a lot more wind against you. And when he completed it, he might have been the youngest person to have ever gone around the world in the Western direction. And that's not even what he got into the Guinness World Book for.
1: Um, talk about some. Violence. Hi, so uh, my name's David Hayward. I'm 25 from Surrey in England. Um currently a medical school student and um, before I went back to university to start medical school, I uh, spent the year from September 2018 to kind of August 2019 riding uh, 21,000 miles around the world westbound at age 23. So I think that kind of unofficially makes me the uh, youngest person to ride around the world westbound because nobody is stupid enough to go westbound. Everyone goes east with the prevailing wind.
2: That's amazing. So 22,000 miles? Yeah,
1: so 21,619 miles, I think.
2: Wow. We can assume so many things for any cyclist who's ever thought or heard about anybody cycling around the world. We could all imagine reasons, but what was your reason for wanting to cycle around the world?
1: I mean, in a word, uh, curiosity, but uh, as a slightly more detailed answer, I think. I mean, but me, I've done a few smaller bike tours and I didn't travel too much as a kid. And I did my first little bike tour after my brother had bought a road bike to do an Ironman triathlon back in 2011. And then 2013, rode from my home near London to Paris. And it kind of blew my mind that you could go internationally on a bike and you could actually travel this kind of... I'd never been to Paris before, despite the fact from London, it's only about 300 miles. So we rode there over five days and it really blew my mind as to how far you could travel and what you could cover with your own just two legs and kind of two wheels. Yeah, so then a couple of years later, I took my younger brother and we cycled down to Rome from our home in London. And then the year after, with all my brothers, so a group of four of us rode the length of the UK from land to Giant Groats. It's about a thousand miles. And then the year later, rode my brother to Amsterdam. And then, yeah, it was, an ex- it was a kind of an expression from there and a kind of a, a growth from there, really, that I got to the point where I had a year before I went back to medical school uh, to go back to university and I was working and decided that. Of the year with all my siblings and things getting married and having children I decided that one final year without any responsibilities if I was going to go and give a year to adventure and see what was out in the world this would be a really fun way to do it it's such a great way to see different things between all the tourist cities and meet people being very vulnerable on a bicycle I think forces you to interact with people and rather than going sitting on kind of the beach in Thailand and just hanging out with other 20 somethings in a hostel not that there's anything wrong with that, but I personally didn't want to go and do that. Um, just being able to meet other people and actually experience different bits like across the state, seeing all the kind of middle-of-nowhere towns full of like 20 people who've lived there for four generations, like you don't get that in the UK. So going to see all those tiny little places between the tourist spots was really uh, insightful and really humbling at the same time. So that was kind of my, my reason for going, just to see what was out there really and explore a little bit off the beaten path.
2: So you're actually in the Guinness Book of World Records.
1: Yeah, so I, I was, I think someone's, someone's broken it uh, since, actually. But in 2017, in my first solo trip, with a, I had a week off work, and it the only thing I could really fit in. But uh, I found online the Guinness World Record for the most countries visited by bicycle in a week. And so I found that online and thought, mm, I've, never really, I've never ridden more than 120 miles in a day i did a london to paris in 24 hours ride so that's kind of yeah it's kind of get a bit of a break on the ferry between england and france but i thought i'd never ridden more than about 120 130 miles in one go so i saw this challenge and it would involve basically riding about 150 160 miles a day for a week alongside a whole all the evidence criteria that guinness world records mandate and the people like mark beaumont don't tell you about um, and i had to go i went and did that in the october of 2017 just to see what i was kind of capable of and uh just to see what i had in the legs and uh yeah it wasn't yeah that kind of a little bit of planning to see which kind of routes you can take across europe and uh, just hit the most number of countries and then working out all the through the kind of catalogues of record evidence that guinness mandate that you have to kind of prove that it's actually a record and then when set up and did that a so road through 13 countries and about 1100 miles in a week riding from the netherlands to bratislava in slovakia One of the weirdest things, I was riding in the desert in, I suppose it's the southwest corner of the Gobi Desert, just north of the Great Wall of China in, in China. So you're kind of not two, not a million miles away from the Mongolian border and things. And I was riding along and there was this big giant, like, kind of 30 foot high white dinosaur. Um, like a, yeah, big Diplodocus type thing. That was a very peculiar thing. that Someone put that, they made a scene or something. But it was very peculiar. That was, that was a very weird thing, seeing on the side of the road and did involve me having to pause and say like, am I actually seeing that? Or am I seriously dehydrated or what? But yeah, there are other times where you are just riding along. I remember riding in the middle of Kyrgyzstan and there was a rainstorm up a valley, so about 3000 meters above sea level and got caught in a rainstorm. And my waterproofs sadly weren't waterproof that much anymore. So I pulled over and ended up hiding in a little yurt for the family. And I was just sitting in there just going, how on earth have I ended up in this position? Why am I? Why am I not sitting in my office in London? Why am I not like studying at school or something? Why? How have I ended up here? And that was a very peculiar incident. But they are really friendly. Actually, they were selling like horse milk out of a bucket, which I refused and because I'd heard people get very very sick on that stuff. But then they gave me a whole bunch of bread, and then I tried to pay for it, and they refused to take any money for it, which was amazing. These people were living a nomadic lifestyle, Um, their lifestyle in the middle of nowhere in Kyrgyzstan and I wanted to give them like 20p or whatever for a loaf of bread and they said no, they were quite happy to give it to me and help me out.
2: What was your biggest takeaway after the whole thing was all done? You know, I've, I've done much smaller rides and had trouble processing. I did the Ragby ride across Iowa last year with 30,000 other cyclists just going across oh, awesome. one state. And Jeez. it was like 500 miles. It took me weeks and weeks to mentally process everything that I experienced on that trip. Mm. So I can't imagine. Do you still wake up in the middle of the night and think to yourself, oh, my memories come back to you out of nowhere? Or what? what is it like processing all of that data?
1: Yeah, it's a good question because I chatted to a guy in. Uzbekistan who was on a big motorbike ride and he said that he struggles after about a month of doing his motorbike tours to really kind of really experience new things and really take it all in because otherwise it becomes his kind of lifestyle and doesn't really find that he can't really doesn't, doesn't get as much from each experience after about a month or so because it's just all so new all the time it doesn't feel new anymore if that makes sense so I do still have to process it and keep kind of reminding myself it's something that I've done and keep going back to so I actually used the lockdown period and this whole pandemic situation to go through all the audio diaries from, I did each night, I recorded about four or five minutes on my phone of kind of the diary from the day and what happened. So I went through those and transcribed all of those, ended up being about 130,000 words from, what was it, a 349 day trip. So there's a heck of a lot to go through and transcribe. And I'm going through a whole bunch of the video footage now to try and put something back. But I still try and... Yeah, it was, you have so much time to think when you're on those rides, especially by yourself. I can't imagine with 30,000 people on a ride, you have that much time maybe to yourself. But yeah, it was a, I think my biggest takeaway really was a partly kind of a, a humility, for realizing how kind of fragile and how weak you are as a, as a human being Um, in terms of like your entire mood can get completely thrown out just by a strong wind or a poor road or not not having enough caffeine that morning to keep you going, that kind of thing. And you realize that how how uh, how kind of how fragile the body is. But then you also realize that if you've got a goal that's kind of big enough, motivating enough, and you've got people around you or kind of family at home supporting or the people you meet at the side of the road encouraging you and kind of going along the journey with you, maybe not physically but kind of in spirit at least, you can go a heck of a long way um, if you kind of set your goal correctly and then just put one foot in front of the other and repeat and keep going. Uh, no matter what's thrown at you. So that was one of my biggest takeaways because then I found throughout my other smaller tours and kind of why I keep doing them and keep going on these little adventures to try and uh, try and learn things really and then I apply it to the rest of life when I get back to it. So I think it teaches you to kind of deal with adversity and then pick a large over a kind of overarching goal, let's say, kind of a, something a year down the line, six months down the line, have your general trajectory, what you're aiming for. So my aim was, I don't know, to get across China or to get to the Caspian Sea or whatever. And then cycling back from that and go, okay, to get there, what do I have to do today? How far do I have to go? Where do I have to stay? What do I have to learn? What do I have to bring with me? And that kind of thing. And then it's a case of then coming back after the trip and trying to remember that you've been through all that and what you've learned from the road and then actually apply that into a day-to-day life and actually what is a goal that's big enough or motivating enough in my own life that's going to motivate me to get up this morning and, I don't know, go for a bike ride again or go for a run or go to the library and study X, Y, Z. And so that's what it is. It's about kind of reminding me to pick a goal that's big enough, that's motivating enough and then actually work backwards from that and say, okay, then where do I have to go today? What do I have to learn from that today? And you realize that no matter what you're doing in life, you're always going to come against adversity and difficulty, but you've got to pick a goal that's big enough that's going to motivate you to push through those things. Because even if you're just on a jolly on a bike ride you're still going to get bad things that are going to happen to you. You're still going to get near accidents with trucks or wild dogs chasing you or rain or wind or have nowhere to stay or whatever. So, you're all, no matter where you are, even if you're doing something you enjoy, you're going to have adversity. But you've got to pick something that's big enough and motivating enough that's going to keep you pushing through those tough times. I think it's probably a long way of saying what I, uh, what I learned from my kind of year away bike.
2: If somebody gets out there, what would be the one biggest piece of advice that you would give them not to do?
1: Mm. One thing not to do. I think don't – when you're getting kind of your gear before you go, I think don't buy cheap. Uh, Make sure your stuff's waterproof. So, yeah, don't get anything that's not waterproof, I think. Because when you inevitably hit rain – I mean, I'm from the UK, so it rains all the time. But uh, I think knowing that all your stuff's dry and that can really – it's a really nice thing to have and kind of a peace of mind knowing that whatever happening kind of outside with the weather whether you're having to like yeah what roads you're on whether it's muddy and spraying mud all over the bike or pouring down with rain I think knowing that your stuff is dry and then you can if you've got a tent with you that you can pull up in a nice dry tent afterwards and you've got somewhere to stop that's the most relaxing thing um one thing not to do it depends where you are but if you're touring in Europe and stuff don't bother paying for water uh like just you can get someone from a tap to fill it up I remember my first few tours, I spent quite a lot of money going across Europe and not wanting to bother people at cafes and things and just buying bottles of water until I realised after a few years of touring, I was like, oh right, I can just save money by just asking people for water. That's quite a, I mean, you can't do that everywhere in the world, but uh yeah, in kind of, say, more developed places possibly and you can just, those kind of little things actually do make quite a bit of a difference if you're on a longer tour paying two or three pounds or kind of four or five dollars for water every day. It all adds up.
2: So you've done it. You've gone around the world. You know, you've done the end to end, which I also did back in 2014. That was my dream tour. I thought that would be the longest one I would ever do. Maybe it will be. Yeah. But where do you think about going now? I mean, especially considering the state of the world, is there a place that really calls to you at this point? I mean, you can't you can't go to the moon. You can't no. go to Mars yet. But
1: yeah, I have to all place... Musk about that. <laughs>
2: Is there a place that calls to you?
1: I did love being in North America. That was awesome. Doing kind of uh, New York to Los Angeles, I realized, and I basically kind of from Chicago, largely followed Route 66. Just turning around, looking at the map on my wall here. There's places like doing things in the Andes and South America would be awesome. I've heard someone to go to the off-road gravel riding and things there would be pretty awesome. I'd love to go out and do that. Yeah, I'd love to follow, I think, what's it, the, uh there's a little route down the Rockies, isn't there? The Trans Am route and the, uh it escapes me at this point, but there's a little route that kind of traverses the Rockies and goes all the way down there. So that'd be brilliant if I could learn what to do with bears because I haven't had to deal with that issue here in the UK. So once I know how to deal with bears and things, I'd love to follow the Rockies and do that. I don't know. I've done a fair bit of touring in Europe. I've never been to Scandinavia, doing touring around there. There's so many places, I think. I kind of hoped, maybe naively, that doing this big trip would then kind of scratch the adventure itch. And then you get home and you're like, right, I've done that. I can move on, maybe do more productive things in my life and study or kind of get a longer term job. But then you come back and you start looking at the map and go, oh, I've never been over there or I've never been to Mongolia or whatever. And so you start looking at other things. So... I don't know, there's so much to do. I've never been to I've never been to Africa. I'd love to do an Africa tour but Yeah. So let's say South America is probably the better answer to that question. Let's say South America. But otherwise I think it's just encouraging people to go out and do it. You don't need don't need all the best stuff. You don't need the most know how. Like I was I'm still learning every day, like especially when i was away and trying to do a bit more this summer or kind of over the pandemic period that uh of how to fix your bike and everything and you don't need all the best kit and you don't need all the know how. It's a case of actually just going out and doing it. And once you do one smaller trip, I did like a few days to Paris after, yeah, I'd not really done much road cycling before or much touring. I'd never toured before or never, never been on a bike abroad. And going, you go, wow, like, that's possible for me. And I think once you do that, then you realize, okay, well, then what's the next step after? And you start to grow like like an adventure muscle without sounding overly cheesy. I think that's kind of my. My big thing that I would try and encourage people to do just get out there and try something and pick something that's kind of motivating for you, whatever that is, to get off the sofa and get out there and explore a bit of the world. Once you do, I think very quickly you could get hooked on it and uh, start pedalling further than you ever thought possible, or what your family thought was a was a good idea. But um, that's what I would probably say. Yeah.
2: So if people wanted to find out more about you or see you on social media, where would they go?
1: So the best place for social media is probably Instagram, which is just my name, so at David Hayward. Uh, Hayward is H A Y W W O D with two underscores afterwards, and then my website is www.david-hayward.com. So there's a whole bunch of stuff there, and write-ups and all the different tours I've done, all the different trips, and some of the kit and a whole bunch of things on there. And uh, I might look at whether I can get uh, write-up a little ebook before I go back to university in september on kind of tour planning and that kind of thing to help people that's the number one kind of question i get about how do you plan things or how do you how do you make it safe how do you keep your family updated or whatever so um i'll probably look at whether i can get an ebook done on my website then um but otherwise instagram is the best place to follow me on that um yeah okay
2: well thank you very much for sharing some stories on the show
1: no i appreciate it thanks for having me it's a it's a, it's a, it's a fun podcast
0: There's a lot going on in the world right now. Bicycles are certainly not the most important thing in life, but that is what the show is about. I want to continue to bring you stories from around the world about bicycles and cycling in order to make positive connections between humans. All that world is still there, even though it has been eclipsed by some major disturbances. Knowing that there is so much else going on for people, I want to acknowledge the struggle but also provide just a brief break from the struggle for listeners who want that. So whatever is causing your problems right now, the pandemic, politics, health, income, your roommates, or all of the above, I wanna validate what you may be going through right now and sincerely hope that the situation improves for you as soon as possible. By continuing to share stories about cycling, I hope I'm helping a little, if only indirectly, So many of us find comfort in riding, wrenching, and collecting bikes and the friendships we make in doing those activities. This is a tough stretch, and I hope you come through it as good as possible. I appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on this podcast. Let's keep rolling. How many different gears does a bike need? Different people will answer that question differently. There is no right answer. There are good answers and bad answers, but there's many of each. If you live in a really hilly area and you have a really hard time getting up a super steep hill, then you probably could use another easy gear. If you live in a flat area and you always find yourself using the exact same gear for almost your entire trip, maybe you have a few too many gears. What about the actual number of gears, the number of choices, of ratios that you have? The original penny farthings, those big giant big wheel bikes, those had a fixed gear based on the size of the circumference of the wheel fixed gear bikes and single speeders believe that there is like a magic note, like a resonance, a magic number, a magic frequency of teeth that can make a person happy or sad while they're pedaling. In the 1970s there was a 10-speed boom where bikes with five gears on the back and two gears on the front could be used in combination two times five to give you 10 different speeds that you could pedal at. Ironically, the bikes that they eclipsed were the three-speeds, which were hugely innovative for their time. Those three-speed bikes were all the gears that multiple generations needed. A simple way of looking at it is, if you have your easy gears and your hard gears, how many steps do you want to be able to take in between your easiest gear and your hardest gear? A three-speed would have three different steps. A 10-speed would have 10 different steps, but some of them are overlapping. A 27-speed bike would have 27 steps with a couple very overlapping sections. So with some exceptions, of course, the highest step and the lowest step on most bikes are kind of in the same ballpark. As you get to bikes that are specialized for mountain biking or cross-country gravel, of course, the highs and lows are going to be different. But just like bell-bottoms and mullets, What's appropriate for a given time, what seems to be the gold standard for any different decade, is basically a fashion. It's a subjective groupthink. Of course it's justified with engineering, but take a bike from any generation and you'll find one that's good on the flats and good on the climbs. Our next guest is a talented artist and photographer. I really enjoy his drawings and he's created a special society for people who ride 3-speed bikes. While new 3-speed bike hubs are still made, the golden age of 3-speed bikes is back from the Sturmy Archer days of the English racer bicycle. One of the cleverest parts of the design is that all the parts are on the inside of the hub. So looking at the wheel on a 3-speed bicycle, you just see a little cord go right into the back of the back wheel. These durable and utilitarian bikes are still around. The Sturmy Archer hubs on which the wheels were built are probably some of the most ubiquitous and durable cycling equipment ever made. I mean, try and think of one other consumer item that you could go into the store, get off the shelf, and have it last for over a hundred years with regular maintenance and care. So let's talk with Sean Granton and his love of the three speeds.
3: There is definitely this misconception. That some people have that three speeds are not capable bicycles even though people have done a lot on three speeds over the years they just don't do as much anymore because of the fact that we have all these options for other types of bikes and derailleur bikes that have so many gears but say if you were in the united states and you wanted to go on a bike tour in the year 1955 probably finding a raleigh three-speed would have been your best option to do that. And people did all sorts of stuff on three speeds, especially in the UK where Sterling Archer is based, and that's where they invented the first three speed hub in 1902. So there was a long history of three speeds there and people use three speeds for all sorts of things especially as that sort of post-war period from like about 1945 to the early 60s when people were doing a lot of stuff on bikes not a lot of people owned cars in the uk during that post-war austerity period so having a bike was the way to get out in the countryside and they were mostly riding three speeds I'm Sean Granton. I have been riding bicycles forever. I've been living in Portland, Oregon for about 20 years. In that time, I have founded the Urban Adventure League, which is a quasi-real league that explores the various interesting parts of the geography of the Portland area, generally on bicycles, but sometimes on foot. I'm also the uh, founder and president for life of Society of Three Speeds, which is a organization that is here to encourage, promote, and um, get people out on three-speed bicycles and restoring old ones. And we've got over 200 members all around the world right now. I also have been an artist forever, and I do comics and illustration and done a lot of comics over the years. Uh, 10-Foot Rule was my old name for a lot of stuff I did, but over the last decade, a lot of it has fallen under the banner of new old stock. And it's basically bicycle-related comics.
4: So
3: a three-speed bicycle is a bicycle that has three gear choices, which is pretty simple. And it's an internally geared hub, meaning all the stuff is inside the rear hub of the wheel. Whereas most modern gear changing methods use a derailleur, which is an exterior system that shifts the chain from different cogs and different chain rings. Everything on a three-speed is done internally. So it just uses one chain, one cog, one chain wheel. And so everything is internal, everything is protected. So that makes it a little bit simpler for maintenance and upkeep. And generally, the three speeds work as thus: um, first or low would be the the speed that you'd be using for climbing. The second or the middle, or in some cases old school, would be neutral, is sort of the general riding around, just the average riding. Uh, third or high would be for really powering along or descending a hill. So. It's a just very basic options. It's not like most modern systems where you have what they now call 11 speed, but that just means 11, 11 cogs cards in the back and two to three chain rings on the front. So that you're having like an option of up to 33 different speeds.
4: So you're basically
3: like not just having, but like it's one tenth of the options. And in those three different speeds, they usually have a good coverage. So you don't feel like that you're being sort of denied. You just basically have a low, medium, high. So it makes, Biking a little bit more zen because you're not thinking constantly about shifting gears as you would with like a modern derailleur system where you have so many different choices. And the difference between this gear and that gear is maybe like 5% increase or decrease where you're always trying to figure out what's the right gear for my speed, my cadence. With three speeds, you don't really think about that. You just basically plop it in a two for a lot of it, and then use the lower high end for the extremes that you might need.
0: For over 50 years, the three speed bike was really popular in Europe and especially the UK, but in the United States, it never caught on quite as strongly. Perhaps it was something to do with the intense marketing strategy of the big automotive companies to try and make cycling in America appear to be more of a recreational or maybe a kid thing. In the 50s, the Schwinn balloon tire bikes boomed. In the 60s and 70s, the muscle bike craze saw the deluxe versions having either three or five speeds, with gigantic shifters on the top tubes that led to lots of injuries. But they looked really cool. During this time, adult bikes seemed to be mostly either larger versions of kid bikes, more utilitarian bikes like the Raleigh style, or multiple gear racing bikes. Then everything was eclipsed by the 10-speed boom of the 70s. Where 10-speed bikes outsold cars for the first time ever in the United States. 10-speed bicycles were more of a fashion statement, a consumer craze, So many of them were bought and hung up in a garage and barely ever used. But even so, for a time, those 10-speeds pushed the 3-speed into the area of not cool. Just like how BMX bikes made 10-speeds not cool in the next trend. So I asked Sean about the history of the 3-speeds in the U.S.
3: Well, I mean, in the U.S., I don't really think 3-speeds ever really got that much of a hold i mean single speeds even for adult bikes was like a thing up into the 60s and 70s and there were definitely some three speeds out there but they're not as common as like just a single speed balloon tire cruiser um i think there was definitely three speeds around until the 80s but we as a culture always liked always like the new the modern the best the, the better the faster and 10 speeds were always promoted as being the ultimate for adult bikes back when they really started to come on the scene in the United States in the 60s. The three speeds were sort of looked askance and you know, it was, even though they're great for utility purposes and just m- for most people's needs, a lot of things where people don't want good enough, they want the best. And so it was a lot easier to sell 10 speeds to people than it was a 3 speed because for most uninformed people, they're like, well, 10 speeds obviously better because it's got seven more speeds than a 3. So, of course, I want to go with, with a 10 speed. And so, of course, like the image of a three-speed bicycle in the United States was sort of the image of a Raleigh sports, like sort of the classic mid-century British three-speed. Upright frame, upright bars, chain guards, fenders, and all that type of stuff. And when people really started to get into bicycles, at least for adults, during the bike boom in the 70s, that was the thing that they didn't want. They wanted sleek, stripped down. They don't want chain guards. They don't want fenders. They want drop bars. They want quote, professional riding machines that they can go you know, fast. And so the three speed was just sort of looked, looked aside and never really got a hold in the United States as it did say in Britain or in other parts of Europe or, or even in Japan. It's
2: a very practical but.
3: It is a very practical bike. But when the bike boom was happening, it wasn't necessarily about practical. It was about health and exercise and sort of the illusion of racing. So three-speed bicycle, at least the ones that we got in the United States, never had that look. There was definitely three-speed bicycles for racing in England. And a lot of people would also just use their regular three-speeds and just do a few changes to it to make it for races, like especially people that couldn't afford to have two or more bikes, especially like say in the UK in the 50s when there was still a great deal of post-war austerity going around. So having more than one bike was was a super luxury to a lot of people. Like not like now where it's like most people like bikes have garages full of bikes. Like in England, that was not the case. So the elite people had maybe 10 speed bikes in the 50s in the UK, but nobody nobody got on anybody for having a three speed. But in the United States, when the bike room in the 70s happened, like if you it up on a ride, with a three-speed, you probably get poo-pooed. Like, what are you doing with this bike? Like, don't you want a real bike? (laughs) So, you know, and it's like, it was enforced by the the popular, like, I mean, there was no internet in the 70s, but there was definitely a few bike magazines, and then during the bike boom, there was a lot of bike books in the United States. Finally, after so many years, biking for adults became a thing. There was a flurry of books in the early to mid 70s about just general biking. And they all talked about three speeds, but they all sort of like felt like they wanted to like spend as little time as possible and just discourage anybody from using a three speed. And it was just sort of, I think the most amusing thing is Eugene Sloan, who wrote like the Sloan's big book of bicycling. And he just passed away recently. He was, I think in his 90s, but he he was like one of those first U.S. guys that had like the books and people would go to, and the first edition I think came out like 1970. I don't have it handy. I have like a, a later version, but the first edition talks about three speeds and just basically say you don't want this bike, even though they shared a, a Raleigh Superb that had all all the bells and whistles for commuting, including a rack and lights. And then they would talk about the ten speeds are better, but then at the same time say I, I wish these ten speeds were like better for commuting like because you if you wanted to actually commute, you'd have to get a 10 speed and then build build up and do all these things but at the same time they had like this perfectly good option this three speed that came loaded packaged, fully packaged like a Raleigh superb had if you got it with a dyno hub and a lighting system which you know and they had that in the 70s basically would just can take it off out of the bike shop and you'd be ready to go you just need to have like a bag to put on the back but that was just for like the quote unquote serious cyclists that was never going to be an option. So they would just find a 70s jeton or some other French, French Italian road bike. You know, they weren't really into the Japanese bikes yet and like f- try to figure out ways to make it like better for commuting that because these bikes were basically sold as stripped down things with the idea that you'd probably be racing on it.
2: So it kind of reminds me of, the scene in Spinal Tap where the guy's got a guitar amplifier and he's bragging about it because it goes up to 11 Mm -hmm. instead of 10. And most of them will go up to 10, but his basically had a number added onto the outside of it. That's, that's kind of what this whole thing reminds me of. The marketing of 10 speeds back in the day, putting somewhat the nail in the coffin of the three-speed movement, or at least the first incarnation of the three-speed movement in America to rest was kind of like that. It's, but it goes up to 11, you know? And the yeah. three speeds themselves actually cover the same spread of gears just with only three steps which is like amazing too like especially if you looked
3: at gearing stuff in the 70s and people it's really interesting if you look back to bike books because there's things that they were very concerned about for example whenever there was talk about tires in books from the 70s it was the difference between so up tires, like, you know, the nice light racing tires or your sort of standard, um, you know, going on the rim wire bead ones. Nowadays you talk about tires, it's do I do tubeless? What's the width? What wheel size? There's all these things, but nobody for the most part mentions tubular tires anymore unless you're like really into racing or like, I mean, tubular tires are just not even really an option for for most people, like, it wouldn't even be considered an option, but like back then that was like a serious concern and people, people that wrote these books about cycling generally were like the super serious cyclists. So those are the people that were generally like the tubulars the sew up tires, and then they would just spend pages selling you on them. And of course when people like, well, you know, what about flats and like how the hard, like, well, you know, it's a better ride. Like they, they would try to like just get beyond that. <laughs> so the fact like the ride's better, what all these, the ease of changing a flat on your The cross-country tour, like, whatever, I don't care about that. There's just those things that people didn't think about or thought about differently. With gearing, there was definitely a lot of talk in any of those books, gear charts. I mean, nowadays, when you have, like, a choice of 11 in the back and 3 in the front, there's so many different gear options that you're not going to be limited. But now, most standard 10-speed setups basically have the same range as a 3-speed, it's just that they had more shades of gray in between. So... And it was just, wow, like, so why is, why are three speeds bad? Like, oh, because you don't have, to, like, you're trying to race and have cadence. You can't do that because you just have the three, three different choices. But the, the overall range was pretty much the same, you know, between a, a standard 10 speed back then and a three speed. Nowadays, it's a lot different because of gearing. Like, you know, you can get some seriously big rear cogs on a derailleur system. I and mean, my, my derailleur bike has a 40 cog, which I don't think they really got bigger than, 28 back in the 70s. You can have so much gear range and you can get seriously, seriously low gears. That is one thing a derailleur system will always have over a three speed system, at least for now until they figure out a way to get the lower gear better. But in the 70s, it was, it really wasn't much of a difference. You would have the same gear range, you would just have more choices in between with a 10 speed, but you know, three speed would still give you an equivalent low and an equivalent high to what they had back then.
2: All right, let's shift gears. <laughs> All right. All right. The Society of Three Speeds. So people know about tweed rides, where people ride vintage bikes. They might be one speed. They might be three speed. They might even be a 10 speed. What makes the society different and what is it?
3: There is overlap between tweed rides and three speed stuff, but they're not one in the same. Tweed rides is more about... Fashion. It's more about dressing up in a certain way to evoke a certain era, and the bike is in some tweed rides is almost secondary to what you're wearing. I'm not saying that people don't care about the bikes in tweed rides, but it's definitely a different angle. And you could see people riding, really getting into it in a tweed ride, and having vintage bikes really done up. And you can see people that are riding some puffies they got from the department store. (laughs) Like on it too, the beauty of the tweed ride is not necessarily about you know having the right bike there will definitely be people that really get into it appreciate having some really nice bikes and some old bikes on there and then sometimes people have like awards and stuff like that but i feel it's just not the same degree of emphasis on the bikes you know three speeds i think are probably the best and the easiest bikes you can do for a speed ride if you want something that's sort of appropriate but also you didn't go on ebay and find an iver johnson trust frame from 1918 type of thing the three speeds are still plentiful. You know, if you check your local Craigslist, you'll probably find a few rallies on there right now and probably for a decent price. My three-speed rides, Society of Three Speeds, and other people doing sort of similar things like the Lake Pepin Three-Speed Tour in Minnesota and Wisconsin. It's more about appreciating three-speed bicycles and putting them through the paces and seeing what they can do.
2: Your club, you've got people from all over the world who signed up for your club, Mm -hmm. the Society of Three Speed. And you get this adorable membership kit. I got one when I joined last year. People in the UK, where else have people signed up for your club from and what did they get?
3: US, Canada and um, UK are probably the three biggest countries. I know that I have a few people down like Australia and New Zealand that signed up, a few people in Europe, continental Europe too. Uh, those, it's pretty much uh, the places. It's still primarily like, a lot of US and UK and stuff like that. Uh, the mission of the club, uh, preserving, enjoying, and riding three-speed hub-geared bicycles.
0: I asked him about his three-speed challenges.
3: That's... um pretty basic. It's just basically encouraging people to ride their three-speed bikes more. It boils down to riding your three-speed three times a week for at least three weeks, and a ride of at least three miles each time. So three, 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 three. Pretty basic. It's just there to sort of get people to just get out there on their bikes more, on their three speeds especially, and doing it during October or like basically before winter really starts coming in.
0: The best part about the challenges is, is the amazing artwork that gets created for them It might be turned into a little poster or a postcard or a patch or a decal, but
2: it's really cool artwork. You should definitely check it out. So if people wanted to join the Society of Three Speeds, what would they do and what would they get?
3: Well, it's pretty easy. They they can go to my website and purchase a kit. Um, There's two, two kits, the basic kit, will include a patch, a few stickers and buttons, some three-speed literature, propaganda, and their own membership card. Everybody in the club gets a membership number, basically. It's chronological order from where we started. And we started the club in 2013. What is the number that I've gotten up to? fairly high. Uh, We are 246 members. Nice.
2: And you also make these small magazines?
3: Yep, I got some comics and some jeans best way to get it is directly through me um right now i currently don't work with any other you comic distributors so um direct is the best and new old stock is a comic that i've been doing for just about eight years now and it's just sort of a journal of sorts of my life through bicycles in comics form and especially as i was talking about like how i'm doing all this stuff with three speeds and i guess my whole angle with bikes and stuff is not sort of like the the standard mainstream angle and i guess you know somebody that's just always sort of been interested in alternative cultures comes naturally but i live in a city of portland oregon that there is definitely has been a scene around practical transportation utility cycling and also about having fun with bikes this comic's just sort of describing my encounters with other people with bikes and what I do with my own bikes and my bike touring and stuff about three streets. So it all, all the comics generally feature me because I sort of grew up in the era of personal comics in the mid to late 90s where you, know, you just drew comics about your life and yourself. So what I do now, like I don't have superhero <laughs> characters in my comic and stuff like that. So I feel the need for that.
2: Okay, where can people go see some of these comics to get a taste of them?
3: Probably the easiest way is if you look at my Instagram account. uh, That would be Urban Adventure League PBX.
2: So if you go there and you see this art, which is amazing, it's just enjoyable to look at. You might hate this word, but to me, it's a comforting. When I look at it, it feels like, ah, here's my people. You know, it's it's that type of feel to it. It's vintage, but new at the same time. It's just very... uh, it strikes a chord with me so if somebody sees your art and then they would like to commission a piece you're also doing that now as well oh yeah i basically do
3: pen and ink illustration work and uh, one of the things i know how to draw after doing it for so many years is
2: bicycles. so hopefully people go check out your art and thanks a lot for sharing your stories on the show oh, no problem thank you
0: It's time to give thanks at the mid-roll thank yous. I'd like to thank the people in over 90 countries who have downloaded the podcast over 70,000 times. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank everybody who's shared stories, has stories waiting in the queue, or who is planning on sharing stories at some point. Thank you very much. I also want to thank everybody contributing to Bike Karma on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help support the show. My goal is not to get rich, but just to help pay for expenses and maybe someday break even. There's also some behind-the-scenes extras there. Just go to Patreon and search up Bike Karma. I know a lot of people are having financial stress right now, so if you can't do that, you can help the show for absolutely free just by leaving a nice review somewhere. And for following wherever you listen. For following on Podbean, thank you pbg five two nine nine zero two q 3 rm Thanks a lot for picking a really easy name, and thanks a lot for following on Podbean. And also Odd Whitby, Odd Whitby, thank you very much for following on Podbean as well. If you're looking for Bike Karma Online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Vero, Reddit, Twitter, and we even have a channel on YouTube right now. That's mostly audio files, but greatly appreciate anybody who follows there. Like to send out a big thank you to Shepard Myers. He's the guy who redoes bicycle seats from the last episode, and these saddles are pretty amazing. He came by after the episode aired and dropped off a whole load of bike stuff because I was pretty well lamenting the fact that there were no swap meets this year, and so he gave me a bunch of bike parts that he had gotten that had saved, and so I got a bunch of cool stuff to go through. He also took a couple of my favorite types of saddles, like if you have a certain type of shoe that you like to wear and you buy like five pairs of them, well... I do that with the saddles, the WTB-SST saddles, they're just my favorites. They came standard on Surly Crosschecks for a couple years and I found them to be really comfortable and so he took a couple of the extras that I had and he recovered them and one of them he inlaid with the Bike Karma logo on the saddle and it's still rideable, all with reclaimed materials, so you can check them out and follow him at that post there. So thanks to Shepard Myers and also to Kevin Felton. Kevin, thank you very much. He sent some stuff to Fred Thomas to sell and said just give the proceeds to the Buy Karma podcast. I thought that was really nice. And speaking of Fred Thomas, Fred is a supporter of the show and he does a bunch of businesses about bicycles, one of which is The Frame and Wheel, where he sells your stuff online for you to save you time, space, and cash. Now your first inclination would be like, well, hey, why should I send it to Fred instead of just selling it myself? Won't he charge like a fee or something? Well, yeah, he does, that's that's how business works, but he also takes care of all the pain in the tookest stuff that you don't think about until after it happens. So when I've sold stuff online and I meet people locally, I've met some of the creepiest people and some of the nicest people, but also, yes, some of the creepiest people I've ever met in this hobby. Rolling up into a parking lot to sell something from online, there are a lot of good people out there, but you never know what you're gonna get. And if you're gonna ship it, you have to pack it so it doesn't break. I'm still no good at wrapping Christmas gifts. I've also spent hours exchanging emails and messages with people who were just wasting my time. And spending all that extra time trying to take really good pictures just to have somebody ask you what kind of brakes are on that when you clearly showed a picture close-up of the brakes. Well all that stuff, give it to Fred. Fred at the frame and wheel, take care of all that stuff for you. He also has a loyal and growing crowd of buyers who know that Fred vets his stuff and really knows what he's doing. So they do their shopping on Fred's Facebook group and his eBay page first so that they get all the deals. I recently asked Fred what's going on in the shop these days and what he's doing for people online.
4: Hey Tom, it's Fred Thomas at Frame and Wheel and to answer your question, Frame and Wheel is the leading full service provider of reselling services for cyclists and bike shops, and bike teams, and bike companies, and cycling-related nonprofit organizations. Anyone, any organization that's got too much cycling gear, whether it's bikes, frame sets, wheels, components, accessories like trainers and bike racks, uh, and not enough time to sell it themselves. We have a global market and we are standing by to help all those folks get their stuff sold. And I'm standing here in the warehouse and I'm looking around at all the stuff that's in the pipeline and it's looking pretty good. Well, let's see what we got here. We have a Cervello PC3 frame set that's coming up. We've got a, a steel Bianchi zero and we have all sorts of components and rims, and we've got wheels, and we also have a full range of sizing samples from Verge Sport. This is very nice stuff. Uh, We've got jackets and Aerotherm vests and cross suits and uh, speed suits, all the way down to arm warmers and leg warmers and jerseys and what else Um, it looks like a vest wind vests This stuff is all up on the store right now and it's going fast so if you want to get suited up for next year or the winter tell your listeners to check out the store that's what's shaking right now Um, and say thank you to all your listeners because they've been sending us some business and it all cycles back to your podcast and very pleased about that to keep all the great stories coming so hey thanks tom talk to you soon
0: Thanks Fred, now back to the show. Come back with me to a time long ago in the golden age of American-made bicycles. Though they never really made their own complete bikes, New Departure from Bristol, Connecticut made a rear wheel hub with a built-in coaster brake. These hubs were deluxe upgrades on many brands of the day. Many are still rideable and serviceable today over a hundred years later. Way back in 1919, before the internet, television, and even commercial radio, New Departure was marketing their superior bicycle hubs via the adventures of Billy Banning. Here at Bike Karma, I found a copy of this promotional book and will bring you a chapter each episode until the saga is complete. So come back with me to 1919, when Billy Banning's life was forever changed by a bike with a very special rear wheel. Travel back through time to experience Billy's Bicycle Triumphs.
5: Fourth triumph, Billy's Bicycle Triumphs.
0: In front of a live studio audience.
5: Oh, our children are here to watch. Our grown children. So today, Billy escapes a mob, beats an enemy, and saves a bank with his bicycle. All this did not escape the attention of Harry, who had been Mildred's chum up until the time she met Billy. When passing Billy alone, he gazed into the air and pretended to be ignorant of his presence. But if he was accompanied by Mildred... Billy received a bow and a sneering smile that was more exasperating than any number of cuts. His loss of favor at the home of the banker was not altogether due to their partiality for Billy. Harry's father was an unscrupulous, relentless businessman and for reasons of his own had attempted to oust Mr. Ingalls from the city bank and take his place. His failure in this and other underhanded schemes so awoke his hatred for the whole Ingalls family that he would have gone to any length for any revenge. He built a spite bank, but the community did not take kindly either to the man or his methods and continued to transact its business with the Citibank. Bigger saw his plans falling through and in desperation planned a run on the Citibank that would cripple it and ruin its credit in the city. He sent his men among the people of the foreign section quietly telling them the city bank was about to fail and advising them to withdraw their savings without delay. It needed but a word to fan them to fury. Most of them were depositors in the older bank and the money there represented their savings of a lifetime. His scheme would doubtless have succeeded and the bank been lost had it not been for Billy and his trusty bike. It was Friday noon. People were gathered around the table for the midday meal and the streets were almost deserted when the roar of an angry mob burst upon the quiet air and several hundred furious men and women poured into the main street headed for the city bank. The foremost of the mob swept into the bank and demanded their money, which was given to them. They departed only to be replaced by others and still others until the vestibule was a seething mass of men and women weaving their bank books and shrieking for money. The officials began to be disturbed. Perceiving the seriousness of the situation and knowing that there was not sufficient currency on hand to withstand a run of this size, Mr. Ingalls telephoned the police. When the officers arrived, he closed the doors of the bank until such time as he could secure the funds from the First National Bank of Bristol six miles away.
0: This is very much like a Christmas movie I've heard of.
5: It is, and it's Christmas time.
0: It's a wonderful
5: life. It's a wonderful life, yep.
0: Billy's copyright infringement adventure
5: i don't we would have to find out when it's a wonderful life was written mm-hmm. this book i think the kids are laughing at us this book is copyright 1919 so it's possible that it's a wonderful life is plagiarized that
0: is taking from billy
5: from billy's bicycle triumphs oh my because god i'm pretty sure that it's a wonderful life was post 1919. I am a, I'm positive of it.
0: Wow. We've unearthed something. <laughs> this is big.
5: An attempt was made to tell the mob that their demands would all be satisfied before nightfall. But the voice of the speaker was drowned in the chorus of hoots and yells, which the air was filled. In fact, they seemed more infuriated. Whenever there was a lull, The hirelings of Mr. Biggers moved to and fro among the crowd, urging them to fresh violence and disturbances. Sticks and stones began to fly, several of the big plate glass windows were shattered, part of the hedge was torn up, but the mob went no further, for in front of the entrance armed men looked down on them, and none of them had the courage to dare the drawn revolvers in the hands of the officers of the law. Billy was attracted by the noise and followed the mob at a distance. He tried to find out what the disturbance was about but was unable to do so and was unaware of its seriousness until the crowd stopped in front of the city bank and rained a hail of stones and sticks at the solid structure. Billy did not know what it was all about, but it spelt danger to his friends and that was enough for him, cautiously, and like any curious boy, he worked around the edge of the crowd until he came to the rear of the building. Here, a small window, hidden behind the hedge, gave access to the cellar, and concealing his bike among the shrubbery, Billy crept on his hands and knees to the window, slipped in, landing face downward on a pile of coal, and made his way upstairs. Just as he opened the door of the banking room, a large stone, hurled by one of the crowd outside, struck Mr. Ingalls a blow on the head, knocking him senseless to the floor. He ran to his aid, and when the cashier reached the side of the injured man, a black-faced boy was tenderly wiping the banker's face with a handkerchief while the stone lying nearby told the tale of the president's injury. At first, he didn't recognize Billy, but in a moment saw beneath the grime the well-known face of the banker's favorite. "'Hello, Billy,' he said. "'How did you get in?' "'I came in through the window in the cellar,' answered Billy. "'Tell me quick. Is he badly hurt, and what can I do to help you?' "'Not much, I'm afraid,' said the cashier, who was now busy with a first-aid kit. "'I'll see to Mr. Ingalls, who is not dangerously hurt. "'But the bank is in a bad way, and no mistake. "'I have given orders to telephone to Bristol for funds, and I haven't a report yet.' Just then, his clerk came running in, his face pale with fright. "'They've cut the wires,' he gasped. "'There's someone back of all of this, sir, someone who understands things. "'That mob would never have thought of the wires themselves.' I believe you, said the cashier gravely, but we'll beat them yet. Billy, he said, suddenly turning to the boy, here's something you can do. We know that you are strong and thrifty and honest, but today you must be very brave as well. I will give you a note to the president of our bank in Bristol. Get on your wheel and ride as you've never rode before. Deliver the note and bring back the money in this leather bag under lock and key. Don't hurry inside of the crowd, for they may suspect your errand, though I have no fear they will catch you once you get a start. It's our only chance, son, for they have cut the wires, the fools, so we can communicate with no one excepting through you. It's a dangerous mission, Billy, and you will have to use your head every minute. But by George, I think you will make it. Ready? Well, so long, boy. Good luck, and good luck go with you. It was one o'clock when Billy crawled cautiously from the little cellar window that was now guarded by a special policeman. He crept on his stomach to where he had hidden his bike and walked leisurely beside it. He made for a quiet street in the rear where he would be concealed from the crowd. Most of them were in the front of the building. The few who were loitering around the rear saw nothing but a curious boy, and Billy might have gotten away scot-free had it not been for Harry and his father who were watching from a building across the street. "'There's that Banning,' snarled Harry. "'I wish I could get my hands on him. I'd teach him a thing or two. "'He's coming from behind the bank,' said the older man. Harry, can it be that he is going for help on that fool bicycle of his? It would be their only chance, for the wires are all down. You're right, said Harry. He's off, but I'll fix him. Down the stairs, Harry raced and whispered a word in the ear of a dark-whiskered man who was lounging near the entrance of the building. The dark man moved off and whispered to other men in that vicinity, That's just not right. (laughs) Is he dark-haired? See, I just think... I just think it just sounds like he's, like, the shadow man with him. That doesn't sound good. Yeah, you think... It's 1919. hmm We're gonna let it go, I guess, but it just sounds yucky. Mm-hmm. I don't like to read it like that. Okay. <clears throat> the dark man moved off and whispered to the other men in the vicinity. By this time, Billy had skirted two lawns and mounted his wheel. A little crowd of six or eight men were running swiftly in his direction, armed with stones and bricks, bent on stopping him at any cost. It was rough riding, doubling across the lawns, over gutters, and down side streets, but Billy soon left them behind, and they staggered back, growling discontentedly. By this time, Harry was in his car, speeding in the direction of Bristol, but he had reckoned without the cunning of his prey. At the first turn of the highway, Billy had left the road, ridden down a bypath trundled his wheel through a cornfield and was now pedaling along at a rapid rate on a footpath along the river he heard the car whirl past and smiled to himself thinking of harry's fruitless drive down a dusty road while he was flying at ease on the cool shaded path under the trees harry drove nearly to bristol and then not overtaking billy He charged frantically up and down several side roads, thinking his quarry might have eluded him by this means. He saw nothing to make him suppose Billy had been over these roads, however, so red with rage he whirled into Bristol just in time to see Billy dismount and go into the bank. To molest him in so public a place would bring trouble on his own head. So unseen by Billy, he turned around and headed for home, keeping a sharp lookout for a place where he might lie in wait for Billy on his return. The only direct approach to bristol was the highway running between a stretch of woods and the river in a lonely spot harry backed his car into the underbrush and stood there ready to start after billy the moment he had passed on his return trip he surmised that billy would choose the highway on the back trip as he could make better time on smooth concrete he had not long to wait billy had secured the funds and was rushing at his topmost speed for the city bank and his head bent over the handlebars his feet fairly flying around on the pedals but his ears were wide open and presently from a clump of underbush he had just passed he heard a crunch of gears and the steady hum of an engine he knew that his pursuer was again on his track his mind whirled quickly Every moment lost in grappling with young biggers meant delay in fulfilling his mission and further danger of the bank. He was not afraid of this adversary, but the danger made him cautious. Applying his coaster brake, he stopped almost instantly dismounted, and holding his wheel over his head, he plunged down the bank into the river. Fortunately, the water was not deep, excepting in the middle, and he forded it more easily than he thought was possible. This move was an unexpected one to Harry, who was completely nonpulsed, as he had no desire to risk the struggle in the water. He contented himself by standing up in his car, hurling strong language at Billy. "'I'll get you, you whelp, you'll see. I haven't done with you yet!' Billy paused a moment to recover his breath and think. There was one place where it was almost sure that Harry would wait for him. This was the intersection of the roads, and it was past this point that Billy must travel to reach the bank. Looking around, the first thing that met his eyes was a farmhouse in which there was a telephone, the very thing he was looking for, as it was evident that he could not get the money to the bank without aid. He went to the house, telephoned the Bristol police, and was assured that within ten minutes a patrol wagon would be on the scene. The good people of the house wanted him to remain there and rest, but he determined to see it through, and with heavy thanks, he forded the river once more and sat down in the shade to wait for relief. Soon, three officers came rushing along in the red police machine, and Billy began to feel that his troubles were indeed nearly over. He told them of his adventure, and they immediately became anxious not only to protect him but to capture Harry. It was arranged that Billy should go on ahead of the officers, as though he suspected no danger, while they would follow less than a minute behind. Billy proceeded bravely and steadily, as though he did not expect anything to happen, although his nerves were tense with excitement. As he passed the intersection of the road, he saw Harry crouched in his car with an evil smile on his face for he felt sure that the game was now all his own. Whirling into the road, he yelled, I've got you now, you'll sing another tune. As he passed, he crowded Billy into the ditch and stopped his car across the road. He came at our hero with clenched fists. Billy had sprung from his bike and stood ready. His enemy came forward with a rush, but before he could do more than aim a kick at Billy's stomach, the officers came up and closed in. Young Biggers turned to escape, but the officers surrounded him and handcuffed like a felon. He was thrown into the patrol wagon and taken to Bristol to be locked in a cell. He—he
0: he is kind of a felon at this point, isn't he? Like Ooh,
5: the bad guy, the Harry.
0: Yeah, I mean
5: assault. Yeah. But
0: trying to also close down the bank with his dad uh, and—you yeah. know—he's a bad I mean, guy. I would think he is a felon.
5: Yeah. Well, innocent until proven guilty. Billy had not been injured, and he had been agile enough to dodge the kick, and having no great admiration for young Bigger's car, he mounted his bicycle and rode away, leaving it in the care of one of the Bristol officers who followed him into town. Things were more quiet as they rode through the back streets, for the mob was growing tired of hurling sticks, stones, and coarse language, since it had brought them nothing. Billy had little difficulty in gaining the cellar window and creeping in. The injured president had regained consciousness and was lying on the couch in the banking room. He was the first to see him, and forgetting his injuries, shouted, Here's Billy! I knew he could do it! Instantly the cashier and the clerk surrounded the boy, patted him on the back, and congratulated him for his work. By George, said the cashier, that's a fine piece of work. I never knew there was so much good in a bicycle before. He unlocked the leather bag, and there, safe and secure, was enough yellow back bills to appease the anger of the mob and save the bank. Then, Billy mostly related his experiences, including the chase by young beggars and the arrests this was too good to keep for right away everyone was aware that biggers father and son were at the root of the attempted run on the bank the cashier went to the window and finding the mob in a more favorable mood for listening he held up the yellow backs and explained that ample funds were now on hand to pay all demands and that if they would come in in an orderly manner they would receive every cent of their money there is was nothing so fickle as a mob. Finding that they could obtain their money, they immediately decided to leave it where it was, and only two or three came sheepishly in to withdraw their savings. However, they were more interested in the story of the origin of the run, and on learning that Biggers was responsible, picked up their discarded weapons, and started on a run for the other bank, gathering up recruits as they went along. They were now sure that Biggers was intended on getting their money into his own hands, And their rage was terrible. Had they known that the man they saw was crouching in the hall of the building directly opposite, almost fearing to breathe, his life would have paid the forfeit. But they did not know. And, waiting until the last man had gone brawling down the street, the schemer climbed into his car and disappeared from the city forever. So he just left his kid in jail? (laughs) He just skedaddled?
0: He's a (laughs) dirtbag.
5: That's sad. Poor Harry probably had a hard life.
0: You're already ready. You're ready to forgive him. You, well, you have that open heart. <laughs> I could. He tried to beat he up needs to He know. Tried to beat up Billy. He
5: needs to know love. Love wins every time. He needs to feel the love. That he had first phoned to his family was evident, for when the mob had found that he was not at the bank, they proceeded to his home, which they found deserted by even the servants. After wrecking their vengeance with stones on the outer portion of the building, they broke in, and pillaged and destroyed to their heart's content. The Bigger home was several miles from town, and by the time word had reached the police and they had gone to the scene, the mob had departed. No one was greatly concerned over the fate of Bigger's household goods, and no one was ever punished for destroying them. Mm -hmm. I should have just Mm -hmm. taken them. Used them. Mm -hmm. Why break? Mm -hmm. You know? They're angry. Yeah, but a yard sale?
0: Oh, a yard sale would be good.
5: Right, a nickel apiece for anything? You know,
0: something. Comrades
5: would prevail with that. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the city bank, everyone was happy, and Billy was the happiest of them all. When Mr. Ingalls was removed to his home, he insisted that Billy should come with him, riding beside the ambulance on the bike that shared with him the credit for the day's work. As the Ingalls' home was well out in the suburbs, the family had not yet heard of the events of the last two or three hours. You can imagine their consternation when Mr. Ingalls was brought in on a cot with a huge white bandage on his head and the hospital orderly attending him. The cashier who had accompanied his chief told the story of the afternoon's events, including that of Billy's bravery and the arrest of Harry Biggers. You may be sure that it lost nothing in the telling. Billy stood modestly by and tried to make light of his part, but both the wife and daughter, and particularly the daughter, insisted on knowing every detail. And when they had learned all, actually hugged him and told by their glances as well as their words how proud they were of him. And we're proud of that bicycle too, mother, said Mildred, for he would comes. never have saved the bank with it. Without it. Yeah. For he would never have saved the bank without it. Without it. Thank you.
0: The bicycle from New Departure yeah. Hubs. Oops. Wink.
5: Right. The font is very small. In this so. Oh, it's very it's small.
0: It's tiny. It's
5: tiny. And I'm old. With the quick movement, she slipped a rosy ribbon from her hair and running to the door, tied it to the handlebars. "'Coming back,' she said, blushing. "'I want you to promise, Billy, "'that you won't take that ribbon off until you get home "'and then keep it as a souvenir of this day. "'Blink, blink. Will you?' "'That's very sweet of you, Mildred,' said Billy warmly. "'I will do as you ask of me. "'But really, don't you think the ribbon... Should be on my new departure coaster break instead of the handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> Billy knows where he wants that That's ribbon. That's subtle. Yeah. <laughs> he has definite, definite has ideas, ideas about is. what he wants. Uh, he likes, yeah. If it hadn't been for my new departure, I'm afraid the story might have had a different ending. You're right, answered Mildred. I'm going to put that ribbon where it really belongs. Oh my God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and she did.
5: <laughs> These are children. Stop. <laughs> it's late. Okay. Billy was afraid it might look queer to see a boy riding along with pink ribbons on his wheel, but he had given his word, and to give his word was to keep it. The story of the mob had by this time run like wildflower fire through the city and Billy's name was on everybody's lips. Riding home through the center, he was embarrassed by the smiles and the words of praise directed at him, for he was a modest boy. Nobody even saw the ribbons, or if they did, they regarded the display as a well-earned decoration. When he arrived home, his mother actually cried for joy, and his father, glancing at the ribbon-decked bicycle, took the lad by the shoulders and said, Billy, I can't tell you how proud I am of you, nor how glad I am that we bought you that new departure-equipped bicycle. Young Biggers was brought before the Bristol Police Court the morning following his arrest, but Billy urged the prosecuting attorney to let him off, on condition that he leave that part of the country as he felt that the young scamp had only followed the bidding of his father and that a sentence to jail or prison would be a lifelong handicap. The judge called Biggers before him and after giving him a severe talking to imposed a heavy fine which was finally paid by his father's friends. The young man had evidently learned his lesson and was very penitent. After the hearing he was permitted to talk with Billy to whom he expressed his gratitude for not pressing the charge and promised to make the most of himself thereafter. Within a few weeks the spite bank closed its doors as the elder Biggers was still in parts unknown. Wow.
0: This took such a dark turn. <laughs> it did. And it was so long.
5: It was really long. It was very long.
0: You actually had an existential crisis <laughs> when you looked at how many pages were in this one. Yeah.
5: fifth triumph is only a page <laughs>
0: Yeah, The Fifth Triumph is only a page and a half. I this had no idea that this one. You this
5: know. may have been the apex of the story.
0: So, thank you for reading it. You're welcome. I mean, if you have enjoyed Elizabeth's reading <laughs> of these hundred year old bicycle adventures, Oof. please show her some love by commenting. No. <laughs> Nobody's read these for like a 100 years. I I honestly don't think that anybody has sat around reading these. Have
5: you even read Billy's Fifth Triumph?
0: I've not read it. So Just so I could hear it fresh with you.
5: It is fresh because I haven't read it before I read it
0: out loud. You you don't get this type of support material with a Walmart bike. No. (laughs) There's no like they don't even suggest you might be able to carry some groceries home with that i mean here you don't get
5: is. you don't get fictional bike fantasy with even a fancy bike
0: even with a fancy bike that's true it's implied
5: but you don't get
0: it you don't get it no yeah no. Wow. so i know what i want for christmas
5: a new departure. A new departure coaster. A new break. Departure coaster do you break have that? in the thousands of filing cabinets downstairs? Thousands of. I do not have a new departure. I do not
0: have a new departure. Yeah. I've seen them. I've touched them. Uh uh-huh. I do not have one.
5: At all your swap meets, you never said oh, oh, I don't have one of these. I, well,
0: I did not know about this story that oh. would happen to me if I had one.
5: Mm-hmm. Are they and, expensive? Not really. No. No one knows the value There's a until lot of now. It. Until everybody hears the story and they realize they got to hit eBay up, because
0: we're gonna see a spike in eBay prices. So bike karma listeners take advantages of it.
5: <laughs> they're gonna go up because they're life changing.
0: Fred Thomas is gonna start <laughs> to see him on the frame and wheel. People be I mean, swapping over their Treks and their Specialized. Yeah, for um,
5: this because of how life changing it is. The lonely. We'll find partners. The weak will become strong. The meek <laughs> will become brave. It is the way. But what's going to happen? Yeah. So that's 2021 on the new Departure Coaster Break. Okay. Well, okay.
0: the longest installment. We it's are done. over halfway through. Oh, way over halfway through. There's not much through. left. Not much left at I all. just
5: I just perused. There's only... He's going to college, everyone, An episode triumph billy goes to college so hold on will he take his bike will it be stolen as most bikes in college are will he have a kryptonite u lock did new departure
0: departure make a lock
5: (laughs) does
0: the new departure hub actually beat up criminals who try and take it who
5: knows so oh boy six it looks good and the final is number seven. All right. The kids want to decorate the tree now.
0: Okay. Well, we got to go happy decorate holidays, the tree. Happy everyone. holidays, everybody.
5: And happy new year. And I hope your 2021 is triumphant. I hope triumphant. our 2021 is better, It's triumphant.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. Bye.
5: Bye.
6: Hi, my name is David Matthews. I'm from Bike Friendly Atlanta. I'm here to remind you to do your ABC Quick Check. Our mission at Bike Friendly Atlanta is to raise awareness for safer streets for all to use by placing ghost bikes around the country southeast and trying to raise awareness for people to treat each other safer while on the road using automobiles, cars, or bicycles. To date, I've placed over 85 ghost bikes around the southeast and anywhere from Santa Ana, California to Orlando, Florida, and anywhere in between. These people were simply out for a bike ride, possibly going to work, possibly going to see friends and neighbors, and tragically, they were taken from us, and these ghost bikes commemorate them and try to raise awareness on a daily basis that we all can use our roads safer and be a lot nicer towards each other. And today, I'm here to remind you to do your ABC quick check every time you ride. Not doing it can cost you dearly. A, always check your airs and your tires. A lack of air also causes many pinch flats. The B is for your brakes. Sometimes, squeaky brakes are also a sign that your brakes are not operating properly. So, check those before every ride. C is for the chain and the gearing. Make sure your chain and your gears are also aligned. This will help you have a better ride overall. Also remember to check your quick release or your through hubs. The nuts that hold those on or the quick releases need to be safe and secured very tightly. Those coming off at any speed can be a tragic crash for you and anybody around you. So make sure you check those. And then lastly, the overall quick check. Make sure you check over everything on your bike from front to back, top to bottom. And just remember, checking over your bike every time you go out to ride, and sometimes when you come in from a ride, can save you lots of heartache and also a possible bad crash. Make sure you check your bike before and after every ride, and it doesn't take a lot of time. And once again, during this holiday season that we're encroaching upon, I want to remind you that if you have any questions about Bike Friendly Atlanta, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Look up Bike Friendly ATL. We do service anywhere across the United States, trying to help our fallen friends and their families during their time of trials and tribulations down this long, hard road. They deserve better. We all deserve better and safer streets for everybody to use. Uh, No matter how you choose to use them, we can all get along a lot better on our roads than what we've been doing in the past. If you have any questions, please contact me through Bike Friendly ATL on any social media. I hope everybody has a happy holiday season and take care and God bless.
0: You know, New Year's resolutions never work. You can do them for a little while, but if they're really good, you can start them anytime. I guess one of my resolutions for 2020 is to try and make sure no matter how pressed for time I am or how much I'm trying to build up speed or train, I'm going to just sit down for about five minutes on every ride. It's so peaceful. Sitting in front of a pond right now. Waterfall, some bikes going by me, geese, a hawk. Just an amazing moment. And I could have cruised right through this in my own head. So yeah, I'm gonna try and do this. I'm gonna try and make it a habit. Try and sit on a bench or a stump or a rock or a riverbank. Just a quick stop every ride. Sometimes a built in stop is almost as important as the pedaling. Thoughts from the side of the road and trail. Ooh, a squirrel. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Bike Karma, the Bicycle Stories podcast. I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. I know you hear snippets of it each week, but if you dig deeper, you're gonna like what you hear. Go check them out at Mobjack Music, or you can search up Keller Glass to hear some of his newer solo stuff. All the other music on the podcast was royalty free, and we appreciate those musicians as well. Thanks again to all our guests in this episode a little shout out to tomcat pdx bikes for keeping an eye out for that extra large fargo that i might buy someday i know i know i sold one this summer but i'm gonna trust the universe and that i was probably meant to do that and if the universe lines up to have me get another one i'm good with that too in the meantime i've got a few bikes to ride and a lot of projects to work on i hope you're all doing all right out there and if you'd like to share on the show If you have some comments or some helpful suggestions or you have a product that you think might be a good fit for a sponsorship, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. It's the same email if you also want to be a part of our sticker army. Yeah, it's basically I'll send you stickers and hopefully put them some places. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown except for the music, all copyrights, trademarks, et cetera, et cetera, are asserted and reserved. I'm going to try to find the best in each moment until then, but I am looking forward to 2021, which I am kind of deciding whether or not I'm going to take it off as a mental health year after 2020. But that will not include the Bike Karma podcast, so plenty of stories there will keep coming. Well, thanks for coming along for the ride. And until next time... Please keep it
2: real.